Amen. Our scripture, again, is taken from the 96th number of Psalms, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10. That's Psalms 96, verses 1 through 10. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. Bring an offering and come, in, uh, come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Uh, this 96th Psalm, you'll notice that it doesn't have a title to it. There is no inscription that says who is the author. But actually, it seems as if uh, Psalms 96 through 98 are coupled together. In fact, we see the backdrop for them recorded actually in 1 Chronicles 16 where David is actually the author, and so many of the lines that are in these three psalms are actually written out as a song of worship in 1 Chronicles 16. The backdrop of that is uh, David has ascended to the throne, there has been a victory over the Philistines, and on top of that, the ark of the Lord has been restored, recovered, and returned, and actually being tr it's been transferred to the city of Jerusalem. So there's a number of things that are going on in the backdrop here, and primarily it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's for this reason that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture, there is actually an inscription that's associated with this psalm. And it's called the uh, a Psalm of David composed in the dedication of the tabernacle and uh, or the dedication of the Ark of the Covenant as it is brought into the city of Jerusalem. So really the backdrop here is, is primarily the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, as you know, is the ark, it was actually a box and on top of it was a lid which was called the mercy seat. And the Lord identifies himself with the Ark of the Covenant. It was a physical structure that symbolized God's presence amongst his people. It was to lead the people when they went up, when they, when they traveled in the wilderness. It, it, it led the people, the, the priests led the, the, the group as they, as they journeyed and they carried it on their shoulders. And there's a wonderful image in the book of Joshua when the children of Israel enter into the promised land and they cross over the Jordan rivers. Joshua says in very poetic splendor, uh, he says that as soon as the feet of the priests touched the brim of the waters, 
the waters receded. And the priests who led the way were the priests who carried on their shoulders the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there were tablets uh, of, the, of the law that God had given to uh, Moses at Mount Sinai. There was a pot of manna that fed the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. And there were also the bones of Joseph as a reminder that, that the, the priests uh, that of God's promise to lead his people into the promised land. These were the things that were inside of the Ark of the Covenant reminding the people of God that he has promised to deliver them. And also on top of the ark, as we mentioned, the mercy seat, which was the place of worship, a beautiful statement, again, that we see in the, in the book of Exodus, is that when the Lord tells Moses how to construct the mercy seat, it says on either end, the lid that was on top of the ark, on either end, there were cherubims with their wings outstretched facing one another. And the wonderful statement is this, it is between the wings of the cherubim that I'll meet with. You. That was the place of the sprinkling of blood. So after the sacrifices uh, that were made for atonement, blood was sprinkled on the ark as a reminder that the blood of the lamb is the bond by which God promises to deliver and keep his people. So the ark of the covenant was significant. And of all of the Old Testament kings, the one certainly who, who had a, a clear understanding of the importance of, of any physical representations of God's presence with the people, it was David. David understood the importance of the house of the Lord, and he also understood the importance of the ark of the Lord. And that's why it was placed in his heart to build a house for the Lord, even though God didn't allow him to do it. But he understood the, significant, the significance of God's presence among his people. And so what is the backdrop of Psalms 96 through 98 is the restoration or the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into the holy city of Jerusalem, into the place of worship, because under the kingship of David, they have reestablished Jerusalem as the city of worship. Now, in particular, what I want to do is extract three thoughts from this 96th Psalm as a means for, of, of guiding us as we approach this new year that is before us, individually and collectively. Three things that we can glean here because David is excited. This is almost like a new beginning for him as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the tabernacle of meeting. This is when David dances in, in the presence of the Ark because he is excited at the idea of the Ark of the Covenant being in the temple of the Lord. And so therefore I would again argue that there are three things that we can extract here that would help us individually and corporately as we face the year that is before us. The first thing is this. Notice in verses 1 and 2, David says, Oh, sing to the Lord uh, a new song. Sing to the Lord all of the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. That statement right there. So the first thing to observe is this. Let the substance of God's saving grace be our guiding light from day to day. Let the substance of God's saving grace 
be our guiding light from day to day. That's individually as well as corporately. A couple of things to note specifically in verses 1 and 2 here. Number one, when David says, sing unto the Lord a new song. That's a, a common phrase in the Psalms. Now, some have argued that this is in conjunction usually with significant events. So it, it does, in some respects, it does point to the crafting of new songs of worship that correspond to specific events, particularly when the people of God were victorious in battle. So it may include a new song of praise because of victory in battle. But from a broader perspective, when the psalmist tell us to, to sing unto the Lord a new song, it doesn't necessarily mean writing a whole new song. But basically what it means, it corresponds to something that we see in Lamentations where it talks about the faithfulness of the Lord and it says his mercies are new every day. And the idea is each new day, what's new is the day. And so when David says, sing unto the Lord a new song, it is another way of putting it would be sing or recognize in this new day the fact of God's faithfulness. Sing to him in, in this day, not like yesterday. In other words, let every day be consciously and intentionally an expression of new praise. Not necessarily new words, and certainly each day has its own challenges, and each day has its own opportunities. Every day gives us new mercies, and the new mercies are new glimpses of the one God that we have already been brought into fellowship with. So on the one hand, when he talks about a new song, really it's, it's sort of with new zeal with new intentionality, with new consciousness of God's continuing mercies and grace. In fact, we could put it another way and say with new appreciation. Let each day find us showing God new appreciation for his covenant faithfulness because of his love towards us. But the second part of this which is also important because if we just look at it on the surface, it's easy to overlook it. So in the first place, it doesn't, when he says, sing to the Lord a new song, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to burn our old hymn books and find new songs to sing. But what it does mean is sing with new energy and new intentionality to the God of our salvation. But the other thing in verse 2, he makes, a, in, uh, he, in fact, he gives an exhortation. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now here's how we would hear that in a contemporary Christian setting. We would look at this as a call to evangelism. Go out and tell the world. And there is some of that, surely. We know that as the people of God, we have been commissioned to make, uh, make, or make disciples of all of the world. But when the Psalms tell us to declare among the nations... Remember, Israel was a separate entity. They were a geopolitical entity, and their, their interactions with others were really kind of limited, usually for business dealings, and sometimes they would be in allegiance, but especially under David, they wouldn't even be in allegiance with other nations when they went to battle. 
So usually when it refers to say to the nations, it doesn't mean the same thing that we think it means in the 21st century. When it says tell the nations, we always look at it in terms of evangelism or in terms of the Great Commission. But here is what God, here's what David is exhorting the people of God to be and to do. More than telling them to go out and tell the nations every day about God's saving mercy, really what he is saying is display before the watching world the fact and the substance of God as our Savior. So again, I go back to the point, let the substance of God's saving grace be our guiding light from day to day so that those that encounter us would know that we have been saved by Almighty God. In other words, let us, rather than evangelize the world, let the light of our knowledge of the gospel of grace emanate from us from day to day. It's a conscious thing because some we, we all know that every day has its challenges. We know the mercies of God are sufficient for that. That's why we can't allow our moods, our circumstances, and the things that go on around us to obscure the fact that every day that we arise or every day that the Lord lends us life, we are still his saved people. And the idea that David is portraying here is that within the covenant community, let it flow from us. Let it, let it, let it emanate from us. Let it, let it be broadcast from us that our God, who has granted us this day, is a saving God. Let the fact of our salvation guide us in all of our interactions, in all of our dealings, so rather than broadcasting in terms of door-to-door -door evangelism about God's saving grace. The way I see David's challenge here is that when he says that uh, tell of God's, of, of, or declare the glory of, or, or declare, or tell of his salvation from day to day, the way I hear that is let it be seen. Let it be seen that we are saved. That doesn't mean be, you have to be perfect all the time. We should strive to obey the law of God, but in all of our dealings, in all of our going, wherever we go, rather than just go out and tell people, hey, he saves and have you been saved? In other words, let us be the advertisement of God's saving grace from day to day. We are, we are his advertisements. We are his ambassadors. We are representatives not only of his coming kingdom, but we are the proof that he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, should we go out and intentionally tell people that Jesus saves? Yes. But brothers and sisters, how many of us have known people who have heard that Jesus saves as we go to them and as we talk to them, but when they interact with us away from tracts giving, being given out and away from our evangelistic meetings, how many of us are proof that he saves? And that's what David is talking about. As you go about within the covenant community, as we go about in the world in which God has placed us, let the substance of God's saving grace emanate from us. How often? 
He says, from day to day, let our lives tell the story of God's saving grace in all of our interactions. We will have conflict. We will have situations that will need to be dealt with and, and sometimes in different ways. But in whatever situation it is, we never stop being saved. And the point is, let us never stop showing that we have been saved. I remember when growing up and people trying to explain Sometimes Christians can get salty too, and the way we would put it, it's kind of a dangerous expression. Don't let me have to lay my religion down. And that's what David is saying, the opposite of that. Don't lay your religion down. When you go into that meeting, when you interact with your family, you are still wearing the, the blood of the lamb. And the idea is everything that goes on under that blood of the lamb ought to reflect the blood of the lamb. And sometimes what we'll discover is that we have a better opportunity to consciously share the gospel with people who have seen the fruit of the gospel and the light of the gospel and the light of grace as we interact with them. So in other words, David says, and again, I use the same phrase, let the substance of God's saving grace be the guiding, be our guiding light from day to day. We don't know what this year holds for us, but we know that we are saved. We are saved by his grace, and, and certainly when he speaks of the salvation of God, it is nothing but God's grace. And so we are the displayers and we are the communicators of God's grace. We are the reflectors of his grace in the time in which he has called us. So therefore, I think it ought to be incumbent upon us to be intentional. That as we capture, as we find ourselves in each day as it passes, that we never lose a sense of wonder and splendor at the gift of a day. And that we would never find ourselves so overwhelmed by what goes on in the day that we fail to exhibit the fact that we are saved by his grace. So the first thing to extract here again is that the substance of God's saving grace would guide us from day to day. It doesn't mean that troubles will go away. It doesn't mean that conflict will always dissipate. It doesn't mean that situations won't have to be handled, but let it be handled as those who are governed by God's saving grace. Here's the second thing, and we see this especially in verses 4 through 9, and I'll extract only a few things from this, but here's the statement. Let our worship be intentional in reflecting the character of the object of our worship. Let the content of our worship be intentional in reflecting the character of the object of our worship. There are three things because David has as, as a central thought, both in or in not only in Psalms 96, but in 97 and, uh, and 98 as well, is God as the object of worship. 
And so he, he, he reiterates that in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, um, he says, For great is the Lord, and he is greatly to be praised. So there are three things in particular that ought to be reflected in our worship of God, intentional in terms of the tone, in terms of the content, and the structure of our worship. Number one, it should reflect the greatness of the God that we worship. We are not worshiping, as David indicates here by way of contrast, we're not worshiping the worthless idols of the cultures. We are worshiping the almighty great God. So therefore, whether we are few or whether we are many in number, when we gather in the presence of God, we are gathering in the presence of the great I am. And Therefore, when we come before him, it doesn't matter who's around us, our worship ought to intentionally reflect the greatness of the God that we have gathered to worship. He has called us into his presence and we are privileged to be in his presence. And so we ought to worship him. I, I, I don't know about you, but I find it insulting when I go to church services and people are trying to whip you up into a frenzy and they say, well, listen, if you were at a football game, you would be excited. I find that insulting. I find that insulting to compare being in the presence of the almighty God with being in a stadium watching a football game. And you don't even have to be in the stadium, even if you are watching it on television, to compare worship of God to watching a sporting event. And I love sporting events. Or if you were at a concert, and trust me, I have gone to concerts, every concert Sly and the Family Stone performed in the city of Los Angeles from 1970 to 1975, I went. I went to car parliament concerts, I would go to concerts, and it ain't nothing like a parliament concert or a Sly and the Family Stone concert. It'll get you up out of your seat. But when I'm listening to Sly and the Family Stone perform, when I'm watching the parliament perform, it doesn't compare to being in the presence of the almighty God. No, I'm not, not going to act like I'm in a ball game. And that's what David is saying. God is great. And the worship that is given to him ought to reflect the fact that he's great. He is greatly to be praised. And so therefore, our, this content of our worship, the character of our worship, the structure of our worship ought to reflect the character of the object of our worship. And the one attribute that David leads with is that he's great. Great means, in fact, the way that it's used in the Hebrew, great is, is, is not even in a, on a relative scale. Great, it means he's above. He's better. In fact, that's a, that's a better translation of it. Uh, a better priest. He is, he is a great God. And so when we come into his presence... I know sometimes we have, to, we have to shake ourselves, we have to get, but here's, here's the reality. When we gather to worship, we are in the presence of the great God. And so David says, great is the Lord, 
and he is to be praised greatly. So let's not, let's not use lesser things because there is nothing that we experience on this earth that is equivalent to us being in the presence of the great king and the great ruler of all of the earth. Secondly, not only does David say that he is great and he is greatly to be praised, but he says that we are to ascribe to him the glory that is due to his name. His name. The name above all names. The, the name that is so great among the people of God that the Hebrew people were, they didn't even want to write it out. The glory of his name. And so let us worship God with a, a clear sense of his greatness. There is no time that we gather in his presence in his name where we're not in the presence of greatness. And there is no time when we as the people of God gather in his name where we should not be in awe at the glory of his name. Look at the name of the Lord. It is by the name of the Lord that everything that exists, exists. And so he says, therefore, ascribe to him the glory and the honor. And here's the way God gave us this, this nickname for him that captures it all. Just say, when Moses says, who should I say sent me? Just say, I am. And what's on the other side of that am? I am on the other side of it is everything that his people need for life and godliness. I am the righteousness that you need. I am your deliverer. I am everything that you need. I am. And so when we come into worship, let, it, let this be our goal this year, that when we gather on the Lord's day, let us be struck by the greatness of the God whom we are worshiping. And let us, let us soak in the weightiness and the glory of his name and ascribe to him, not what somebody else says, not what some, some paid cheerleader is telling us to say. No, let us look into the mystery of God revealed in Christ and exalt his great name. That's what David says, ascribe to him the glory that is due to his name. But then thirdly, not only let us that when we worship him and our worship should be intentional in reflecting his character and the, or, or the character of the object of our worship, that means we worship him greatly because he is great. It means that in our worship, we ascribe to him the glory, the weightiness that is due to his great name. And thirdly, David says that we are to worship him in the splendor of holiness. The splendor of holiness. Now, as you know, the word translated as holy has two basic connotations. It means, on the one hand, purity. But on the other hand, it means other. And when we come into worship, 
I, I, I'm trying to get this across to a number of young ministers as we have an opportunity to, to, to communicate with them. One of the things that I, I go along with it, I, I go where I can and, and, you know, try not to rock too many boats. But I, I, one of the, the problems that I have with a lot of contemporary worship is that it's, it's just too mundane. It's just too grounded. It's too ordinary. And, and so when we talk about holy, holy means other. And so our worship ought to intentionally be other. We are not coming to a concert, as we said. We're not at a ball game. We are in a holy, sacred space that is set apart. A comment that we've made over the years concerning the golden calf fiasco as it reflects the worship habits of fallen human beings. There is an intentionality in the fact that the, 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 that, uh, the Israelites, the children of Israel, crafted a golden cow. They didn't, they didn't just make anything. Let me see. Let me make a giraffe. No, they made a cow. And you know why they made a cow? Because a cow was one of the many 80-some-odd gods that were worshipped in Egypt. And after 400 years of slavery and bondage in Egypt, they were defining their god through Egyptian terms. And so they made an image, even though the Lord hadn't prepared the ark yet, but they made an image that reflected the god of Egypt. Now here's my observation on this. The, the struggle of, of, of a fallen man is that we, our worship, if it is not guided by the word of God, our worship will invariably reflect the Egypt that we have come from or will look too much like the wilderness that we are in. And God intentionally breaks into our moment with glimpses of heaven. You notice how the, all of the careful details that the Lord gives Moses in crafting the ark and, and, and crafting the tabernacle and all of the things related to the tabernacle. And it's really not until the book of Hebrews that we get a fuller expression of it. And the writer of Hebrews says all of these things, everything that God crafted, everything that God gave Moses to build with were copies of a heavenly reality. So whether they were in the wilderness or whether they were in the promised land, all of their worship was to be patterned after heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. It was not to be patterned after Canaan, after the wilderness. It was not to be look more like Egypt. It was to look more like heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean pews and structures, but it, what it does mean is that when we gather into this place, even in the construction of it in many respects, and I love this, the study of church architecture, but even in our place of worship, all of the things that we do are to reflect the fact that we have been in Egypt. We are right now dealing with the wilderness of this present world, but God has translated us into the kingdom of his son. We pay taxes like any other citizen. But we worship in an otherworldly manner. And so here's what David says. Worship the Lord. 
in the splendor of holiness. Recently, I had a young lady that wanted to meet with me and talk about our church. She had questions and so forth. And the first question that she had, she had a notebook. She had her questions. And the first question was, why do you wear a robe when you preach? I said, I'm glad you asked. I said, because I'm a sinner just like you. I'm just another, I'm, I'm someone else looking to God's grace for salvation. I said, I'm a man just like you, just like your woman. I'm just a human being, and I am, I'm, I'm no different, no better. But when I open up God's word, when I minister to God's people, I am reminded that I'm not standing in my own authority, and I'm not here to give my opinions. But in the same way that a judge who lives in your apartment building right next to you and you guys go shopping together and he will sometimes, if he, you, your car is, is not working right, he may pop the hood and look under it. And so he's just another Joe Blow, just another neighbor when he's not on the bench. But when he's in the courtroom, he's not representing himself. He's representing the law. And when you walk into the courtroom of your neighbor, you don't say, hey, Joe. You stand in honor of the law that he represents. And so I said, I wear a robe because I stand under the authority of another and I minister under the authority of another. And this is an outward, visible sign that we're not, we're dealing with an ordinary human being, but who has been given an extra, extraordinary task. Brothers and sisters, we should not apologize for singing hymns that honor the holiness of God. We should not apologize that worship doesn't remind you of a high school pep rally. We shouldn't be apologetic about that. What we mean by sacred is that what is central for the people of God in their worship are those things that are purchased and purged by the blood of the Lamb and that correspond in type and shadow to the reality that is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. We come into his sanctuary which is established in splendor and truth. That's why it's, it's good, even sometimes when worship is not going on, it's sometimes good to just come into the place of meeting and just sit still for a moment. Because God gives us, in the midst of a turbulent world and turbulent times, God's place is literally a sanctuary for his people which is a reminder that God himself, in the person of Christ, is our sanctuary. So therefore, let our worship be intentional and in, in reflecting the character of the object of our worship. Let our worship on this year, let, let our worship be intentional in that we are praising, we are giving God praise that corresponds to his greatness that we are ascribing to him the glory that is due to his great name. And let us intentionally worship him in the splendor of holiness. But here's a third and final observation and a guidance, uh, something to guide us as we worship the Lord and serve him in this year. And that's found in verse 10. In verse 10, David says, So among the nations the Lord reigns. 
that statement by itself. Among the nations, once again, we have to be reminded that Israel was an independent nation. And every other nation did not glorify, serve, or worship, or honor God. So the point that David is making is not that God is reigning in the nations and they are intentionally giving him praise and honor, but what he is saying is that the reign of God in the earth is evident to the nations as God's people submit to and sound forth the lordship of God. That God rules amongst us. And so therefore, I put it this way for us in our contemporary moment. Let the lordship of Christ reign in us and sound forth from us. Let us not confuse the lordship of Christ with his acts of providence. And therefore, we find ourselves being more loyal to political causes, platforms, and personalities than we are to the Lord. Let us be radical in declaring, even as we give unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, but let us never give to Caesar what uniquely belongs to God. Only God is due our loyalty. No flag, no man, no office, no party, no platform. Only God is due our loyalty. So let us not confuse obedience and submission with loyalty that belongs to the Lord. Let the Lord reign and let the reign of the Lord sound forth through the nations. As God's people say, as the first century church did in the midst of turbulent times, even when people were saying, well, give unto Caesar. Yes, we will give unto Caesar what Caesar deserves, but only Jesus is Lord. And we must be clear on that so that we are not co-opted, so that we are not corrupted, so that we are not confused. Only Jesus is Lord. No party, no platform, no appointments. Only Jesus is Lord. Let us not not confuse what we would like to see in our communities with the reality of the kingdom of God. God has called us to be his people. And let me say this because it's so much confusion in the air and talking about we have regained religious liberties. May I remind you that there is nothing that God has called us to be or to do as his covenant people that has ever been lost and that has never been gained by any man. Not in this nation. There are nations, and it's an insult when I think of Christians in other parts of the world who can't even read their Bible out loud. Because if if there is something on the books or was on the books where they will come and get you, let them. Let them. I've said this all along. Yeah, yeah, we'll lose our our tax-exempt status. So let us lose our tax-exempt status. That is not something that Jesus has died for. And to lose it doesn't mean you've lost anything. Understand that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of all of the earth, but all of the earth doesn't know it. But the ones who do know it are those who have been saved by his grace. And so therefore, let the Lordship of Christ, let it sound forth from us and let it reign in us. And might I remind you 
that no one makes Jesus Lord except God. And what he does in regeneration is he awakens us to the fact that he is Lord of the living and the dead. He is Lord, and he is Lord over all of our lives. And so let us, we, we are headed for strange and turbulent times. In the world in which we live, in our communities, and even in, our, in, in, in terms of potential warfare and dealing with issues of state, so much so that Christians have gotten behind things that are not bought by the blood of Christ. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus only. Give honor to those whom, to whom honor is due, respect to those to whom respect is due, but loyalty only belongs to the Lord. It is he who has died for us. It is he who has sat us in heavenly places. And so therefore, let us sound forth to the nations that we belong to Jesus and he is Lord. Notice the way David concludes that 10th verse. He says that, he says that we should say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the people in equity. Christ will, he does rule. And his righteousness will ultimately triumph. But until it does, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. This is a great psalm. And if we would take these three thoughts into our new year, that the substance of God's saving grace would guide us from day to day. So whether you're up or down, you're saved. And don't let your ups trump your being saved. And don't let your being down overshadow the fact that you are saved. If you find yourself in a blue mood, that's okay. Wrap up in a blanket and know that the Lord still loves you. And he saves you. Don't think that because you're down that he no, he no longer loves you. He does. And you're still saved. If you find out that you have, you've messed up and there's some things you need to get right, that's okay. You are saved. And let that guide you from day to day. Never lose a sense of awe and wonder over the fact that we who were enemies are now children of God. John says, what manner of love is this? What manner of love is this? Not that we have loved him, but that he loved us. That he looked into every closet, under every bed, knew what was there, and loved us still. Never lose this sense of awe of the fact that you've been saved. So let the, the knowledge of your salvation guide you from day to day. And secondly, let your worship intentionally reflect the content of your worship. Let it intentionally reflect the character of the object of the one that you worship so that he is greatly to be praised because he is great. And that you worship him by giving him the glory or the, the, the honor and the glory that is due to his great name. And worship him in the splendor of holiness without shame. But finally, let the lordship of Christ reign in you 
and sound forth from you in all of your going and all of your doing and in all that you say and do in this earth that it is because Jesus is Lord that we respect those that God has placed over us. It is because Jesus is Lord that we honor the image of God in every other individual so that we will not let the, the moment or the spirit of the day to cause us to otherize any other image bearer of God, whether they are hell bound or seated next to us in heaven, that we will give them the respect that is due unto those who are made in the image of the great God. Jesus is Lord, and that is our life. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we do thank you for the privilege of another opportunity to worship you. We pray that as we look into your word that we are reminded that worship of the almighty God by fallen sinners in a fallen world is a privilege beyond measure. It is a transcendent experience. It's like nothing else that we can or ever will experience this side of heaven. Let us never be so overwhelmed by the things that are going on around us or the things that we are dealing with internally cause us to diminish the wonder and the splendor of being in your presence and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Guide us as we go throughout this year that these things would be implanted in our thoughts and in our, in our minds and they would guide our feet so that we would forever give you honor and glory whether it is in worship or service or in all of our interactions with others. We pray that the stamp of your grace and the seal of your spirit would permeate all of our thoughts and words as we serve you in this present moment. Thank you, Father, for your grace in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and present you spotless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. Let all of God's people say, Amen.